Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, coming May 15th, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick. And the month of October continues. The monster ooze flows on. Rob and I were out last week. And in our absence, we featured a couple of vault episodes from the previous October about the great he-goat, in which we discussed goats as animals, as biological entities, and as symbols, and got into the question of why goats have come to be associated with strange forces and demonic powers, especially in a Western Christian culture. Cultural context. Today, we wanted to begin an October-themed series in that same vein, looking at a different liminal beast, not the Christian imagery of the grand goat presiding over the witch's Sabbath, but Japanese stories about the ghostly eminence of altered cats. That's right. We're talking about the common house cat, the domesticated, if you want to use that word, cat, uh, that, uh, that plays a central role in many of our households. Um, but yeah, instead of and, and yeah, when it comes to Halloween, the, the cat has become an icon of the season, especially the black cat. And a lot of that is uh, depending on uh, Western traditions and Western superstitions, which uh, we're, we're probably not going to get into in this series. But uh, you know, that's informing a lot of of, of, of that imagery that we're seeing uh, in the West. Yeah, uh, but yeah, cat as witch is familiar. Yeah, cat as witch is familiar, and then just sort of generally cat hanging out, looking a little bit creepy has a nice silhouette to use in various Halloween backgrounds. Uh, though, of course, like the goat, uh, the, the cat as an organism doesn't really care about trick-or-treating. It doesn't really care about uh, seances and satanic rites or whatever you have uh, stirred up in your imagination. They have different needs, but they live in close proximity to us. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to be focusing on the various supernatural treatments of this animal in Japanese traditions. 
And Rob, I have to admit, before you picked this topic and I started looking into it, I was not familiar with how many uh, Japanese monster cats there were, how many cat yokai, and how many specifically uh, cat-oriented Japanese horror movies from the mid-century there were. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I mean, when you stop to think of them, they start jumping out at you. Um, I, I guess part of it is I think we all know that cats are popular in Japan. If you're even a casual consumer of Japanese pop culture, then you've, you've probably seen various cute cat videos from Japan. You've seen, uh, oh, I guess some of the, the, the major stars include Hello Kitty. Um, there's the talking cat Gigi in Miyazaki's 1989 film Kiki's Delivery Service. There's that blue robot cat. Um, I'm not actually sure how to say its name. Uh, Doraemon, I believe. Uh, I'm not super familiar with him, but... Yeah, on top of that, you have luck cats, you have just all sorts of cat imagery. And yes, you also have various horror movies and horror stories that entail the cat. But prior to researching this, yeah, I think I would have maybe identified two cat-based yokai or cat-based Japanese traditional monsters. I didn't know that there were enough to fill a couple of episodes with. Oh, wait, I also just remembered the cat bus. Oh, goodness, yes, the cat bus from uh, My Neighbor Totoro. Yeah, another another iconic cat. And, you know, even Totoro has various, you could, you could say that he has some cat-like features. I don't know, he's kind of a combination of panda and bear and so many other things. If a city had cat bus-based transportation, would you take it? Would you rely on that transportation? Yeah, yeah, the kids in Totoro seem to seem to dig it. It looks soft and warm in there. You know, the whole lining is like a, kel- a, ki- a cat's belly, except you won't be scratched if you touch it. I guess I'd be concerned about whether it's going to take me to my destination or w- its own. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever occurs yes. to it. Yeah, I mean, the, the cat bus does have uh, that kind of Cheshire cat spirit to it. Like, what is it going to do? And this gets to the heart of, like, the spirit of the cat. I mean, we could go on and on with just, you know, personal anecdotes and and also all sorts of sort of folk wisdom about the differences between the dog and the cat. Uh, What is it like living with a dog versus living with a cat? What is it like encountering an unknown dog versus encountering an unknown cat? There there are so many differences, Uh, but definitely the the cat has a unique spirit uh, that can be challenging, that can be inviting, that can be very comforting. Uh, there's a there's really a broad spectrum of um, of attitudes one ends up having, even about the most beloved cat in your life. So you're making the point that uh, cats have a good deal of cultural prominence in Japan, not just in their monstrous forms. Right, right. Uh, and but but by exploring some of the monstrous forms, you also get some insight into um, you know how and why. They were so admired and and are still admired to this day. Now, in terms of sources here, I'm going to refer to, um, well, there's an older book I have, Yokai Attack, the Japanese Monster Survival Guide by Hiroko Yoda and Matt Alt. Uh, That one's really good. But also a couple of books I picked up for this include Joshua Friedman's The Japanese Myths, A Guide to God's Heroes and Spirits, and Zach Davison's uh, Kaibyo, The Supernatural Cats of Japan. So this is a book entirely on the the altered cats. Yes. Yeah, this is a really good one. You can find this wherever you get your books, and it has just so many wonderful illustrations in it and stories. We're going we're gonna to touch on some of the, uh, the main points, but if you want a deeper dive into the world of Japanese supernatural cats, that's a book to pick up. Now, getting back briefly just to the general idea of cats in Japan, the domestic cat in Japan, uh, I want to refer to a recent New York Times article titled, Why Do Cats Hold Such Mythic Power in Japan? by Hanya Yanagihara. 
The author here points out that house cats are thought to have first arrived in Japan during the 6th century CE, brought in via the Silk Road as a curiosity from India via China or possibly from Korea. Uh, I think they're just different uh, possible uh, routes that cats may have taken. And at that point, uh, Yanagihara points out that cats would have likely enjoyed the split value that they enjoyed everywhere else they traveled via human beings. They proved themselves an aid to agricultural pursuits, feasting on rodents, and they were amusing. Uh, they're amusing to look at, they're amusing to watch and to try and figure out, and they can, they can become quite affectionate, uh, especially if it you know, serves their purposes. Right, so cute and useful. It's, a, it's an unbeatable combination. Right. And as Yanagihara points out, Japan was both an agricultural country and a court culture country as well. So we can imagine the cat catching on at every level of society. Uh, I see that. So in the agricultural sense, the cat is useful because you can have one around your grain supplies to keep the rats out of it. But in the the wealthy court setting, it might be uh, attractive to have a cat in your lap or in your vicinity as a beautiful regal object or companion. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, what it, the, the cat is here to fulfill those needs either way, again, if it wants to. Now, Zach Davison in his book emphasizes a, a kind of court first trajectory for cats taking hold in Japan. And we do have Heian period descriptions of how wonderful cats were and how much the emperors of the time period loved them. Um, but as populations grew, they were no longer confined to palaces, and as they lost their regal and exotic air, more attention was placed on their behaviors, and legends then sprang up about them, both rural and urban uh, in, in nature. Now, of course, I'm not sure if this is necessarily a case where, you know, we always have to acknowledge that sometimes it's those um, accounts from uh, the upper parts of society that stand the test of time, and it's not uh, the, uh, the the lives of, um, of of people lower down the socioeconomic uh, uh, ladder, uh, but uh, this sounds reasonable, right? I mean, is the cat coming in as an exotic um, singularity, brought into the court, enjoyed in the court, but over time, cats are going to reproduce, the population is going to swell, and there's going to be like a trickle down um, uh, cat economy in a given country. Yes, there's a there's a cat sieve, and eventually the cats make their way through to to every corner of uh, of the country. Now, another wrinkle in, in this that uh, Davison points out is that it can be a little difficult to pin down exactly when written records are 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 specifically talking about cats. Uh, hmm. And this concerns something that's come up before on the show concerning like novel animals in a given culture, and that is that. Um, when it comes to the way that um, that uh, animals were written about in, in ancient Japan, uh, known animals had unique uh, kanji characters. New animals did not. And it sometimes took centuries for them to get unique characters. So instead, you'd use other animal characters in their place. Mm. Uh, so Davison points out that in ancient Japan, the same kanji character designated both tanuki and cat. So it was sometimes, diff sometimes difficult to look back at these writings and determine exactly what animal is being described. Uh, so in kind of the same way you might imagine, like, I don't know, early medieval European writings about seafaring and like you can't tell if they're trying to describe a mythical sea monster or a real whale or some type of fish. It's just a, a word that means like some kind of creature that's clearly in the water. But other than that, you're not sure what it's referring to. Yeah, or how everything is a type of apple. Yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine where it would be confusing going back and trying to, to, to figure out all of this stuff. 
Now, uh, so at any rate, we can, one way or another, cats uh, eventually really catch on. Uh, they're everywhere. Uh, one important date in Japanese cat history, uh, this would be the year 1602. This is the year, uh, according to, um, to Davison, that, uh, during which amidst a plague of rats destroying Japanese silkworm uh, industry, the Japanese government issues an edict, release all domestic cats to battle the rats. Um, <laughs> which maybe sounds a bit extreme, but, uh, but they apparently did it. They made it illegal to buy or sell cats, just release them, let them do their thing, let them fight the good fight against the rats. However, apparently uh, it might not have actually helped much. Uh, uh, it seems like there's some writings that kind of dispute the, the, the idea that this was really all that helpful. Uh, Davidson shares a quote uh, that I've seen featured in numerous uh, sources talking about uh, cats in Japan. Uh, this is from uh, a character who's come up on the show before, I believe, a German doctor visiting Japan during the period, Dr. Engelbert Kampfer. That name rings a bell. Yeah, I don't remember the context, what we were talking about, but I'm pretty sure he's come up before. But he wrote, there is only one breed of cat that is kept in Japan. He's, he's discussing here. It has large patches of yellow, black, and white fur. Its short tail looks as if it has been bent and broken. It has no mind to hunt for rats and mice, but just wants to be carried and stroked by women. <laughs> Which uh, I think this this could basically be applied to, to many cats in our lives. This uh, uh, this sounds a lot like like my cat Mochi, uh, yellow, black, and white. Yeah, yeah, and calico. Uh, just wants to to hang out uh, generally with, uh, with with my wife, and will occasionally hang out with me if it's cold enough in the house, um, and doesn't particularly want to chase anything around, except me. Sometimes, sometimes <laughs> she will attack my feet. By the way, I just had to look it up to see when Engelbert Kampfer came up before. This was another connection from the Vegetable Lamb of Tartary episode. He had a theory, apparently. <laughs> I don't remember whether it was more on track or more off track. I think it was one of the off track ones. Okay. <laughs> now, another interesting historical cat tidbit that comes up in this book uh, from Japan. In 1842, Emperor Tadakuni instituted the Tenpo reforms, uh, which sort of reined in what could be presented in the arts, especially as it concerned kabuki and geisha imagery. However, nowhere in the law did it say you couldn't depict cats doing all of these things. So artists of the day began to illustrate drunken and cavorting cats, like basically, <laughs> you know, um, kabuki-style yes. um, cat soap opera. Uh, which which I love because you know this kind of reminds me of the whole like nobody says a, a donkey can't play football sort of a thing and also yes. brings to mind dogs playing poker. Yeah, Airbud rules apply. I love that. <laughs> now Friedman in his book writes that stories of cats date back to at least as far as the Heian period, seven ninety four through eleven eighty five CE, concerning the cats kept by the emperor. Uh, by the 14th century, magical cats pop up in numerous works of art and, and literature. And of course, they become central parts of Japanese folklore and legend as well. Uh, in this episode, yeah, we're going to provide an overview of these strange cats, these kaibyo, uh, uh, these strange cats, supernatural cats. Um, they have a number of things in common, but they all have distinctive flavors, and some of them are more threatening than others. Now, as Friedman points out, one of the main attributes you find in various tales of strange magical cats in Japan is, that, is the idea that, as with tales of magical foxes, kaibyo are individual cats who have lived long enough to acquire magical abilities and also, like fox spirits, grow multiple tails. 
Yes, that's an interesting comparison to the way the altered foxes uh, are, are treated in stories, uh, those those commonalities. I was trying to think what what is the difference between like a monstrous altered fox and a monstrous altered cat. And um, in my view, you know, the the fox seems like it has the potential to be more of a chaotic alignment. And so in its bad form, it's kind of chaotic evil, whereas the uh, the cat in its monstrous form, I don't know, cats can be chaotic. And I know in some of these stories they are, but it seems like more of a cold, calculating evil to me. <laughs> Yeah, I think that that's that's accurate. Uh, but it's also interesting to think of this as in a situation where you have superstitions concerning um, an, an animal that is native to Japan, the red fox. Mm-hmm. And then when you bring in these uh, these animals from outside, these these domestic cats, uh, something gets applied to them that was previously applied to native organisms. We do need to be clear that there is no such thing as a domestic cat with more than one tail. There are, however, two types of morphological mutations that affect the tail. There's the Manx tailless gene, which can prove lethal. And then there's the Japanese bobtail gene, in which the tail is shortened and kinked, but otherwise doesn't seem to really impact health, or at the very least, it doesn't entail skeletal issues and or involve death with certain genotypes. Uh, The Japanese bobtail gene is, of course, of note here because, as the name implies, it is native to, to Japan. It emerged there in Japan's feline population though it has since spread beyond uh, the limits of Japan. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, here is an area, though, that I, I want to stress that I wasn't able to get like 100% clarity on, but, you know, just for my own research purposes, and that is the alleged practice of bobbing or docking cattails in Japan. Uh, I couldn't find many solid contemporary references to this, though Friedman mentions it in passing, and there's a lot of dismissal of the idea as a myth in general. So on, on one hand, the, bobta- the Japanese bobtail variant was at one point considered lucky, and Friedman indicates that this could have influenced a tail docking practice, some practice by which the tails of domestic cats are removed, though he also writes with uncertainty about exactly how superstition, mutilation, and genetic mutation would have been intertwined here, you know, because if if it if this was taking place uh, to any degree, you know, you, ask the, you can easily ask the question, well, is it because of superstition? Is it because of the genetic mutation that was already there? And, you know, to, to, what, to what extent these things are interplaying with each other? Mm-hmm. Now, tail bobbing of different forms does seem to come up in historic foreign writings on Japan, including a 1906 letter by Greek writer uh, Lafcadio Hearn, who mentions kittens having their tails cut off so that they don't grow up to become a monster cat of one sort or the other. Um, of course, the obvious situation with this is you're dealing with with outsiders who are then, you know, you're dealing with tr- possible translation errors. You're dealing with them having to, you know, perhaps make sense of local lore concerning a genetic mutation that's not completely understood and so forth. Or just making assumptions about things they've observed without understanding uh, key elements. Like you could imagine a scenario where somebody observes a place where there is a genetic mutation that creates bobtail cats and they assume people cut off the tails. Yeah, because as we've we've already mentioned, apparently like the the, the bobtail um, effect does kind of look like a, you can easily look at it and think, oh, well, something bad happened to that animal's tail, etc. Mm-hmm. Now, a legend that I've seen mentioned in multiple texts is that uh, the original bobtail cat lost its tail when it caught fire, causing it to run about and catch a whole town on fire, resulting in an imperial decree. Cats should not have tails because they are fire hazards. Um, <laughs> this is obviously not true. 
Uh, but it, it does illustrate there's a lot of room for just so stories here, you know, some sort of story that uh, is obviously fictional and legendary, and but it is um, is providing some sort of a an origin story for something in nature that is not completely understood. Yeah. So yeah, there's plenty of room for translation error, foreign misinterpretation, and more. Um, I mean, it, of course, on the other hand, we have to acknowledge that cosmetic mutilation of dogs and cats is nothing new and can be found in various cultures. With cats, there's the example of decline, which um, had been widespread in the U.S. and Canada in prior decades and generally entails more than the removal of the claw itself, but like the, the end of the digit uh, mm-hmm. on each, uh, each claw finger. And then tail docking and ear cropping was widespread and is now banned in many countries with dogs. Uh, I mention all of this just for added context in the consideration of potential historic tail docking. But again, there seems plenty of evidence to consider mutation the primary cause here. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't 
feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so question marks about the extent to which tail docking was a real historical practice. But uh, one thing we know for sure is that there are lots of stories of monster cats with weird tails. That's right. Yes. And so the first one we're going to talk about here is the Nicomata. These are cats that are said to have lived for a hundred years. And what happens when you live to be a hundred years and you're a cat, according to these, uh, these, these traditions and uh, superstitions? Well, you get a second tail. The first tail splits in half, and now there are two tails. And other changes occur as well. Suddenly, this cat has a craving for human flesh. They grow to, the, to be the size of like a large dog or a wolf. They may walk on two legs. And thus, at this point, they are no longer a, a domestic cat, a, a cat of the, of the natural world. They have become a feline yokai. According to Davidson, the 14th century work Essays in Idleness tells the story of a man who thinks himself pursued through the night by a nicomata, but it turns out to be his own dog. Um, <laughs> The creature was written about during the Edo period. Uh, this is the golden age of yokai lore, but Davison stresses that the roots of the Nikomata uh, go back centuries earlier. So according to Davison, some versions of the Nikomata may date back to Chinese traditions in the short-lived Sei Dynasty, 581 through 618 CE, and then written about in Japan, at least by the Kamakura period, that's 1185 through 1333, uh, but the accounts were not really of a supernatural cat yet, but rather of a large tiger or lion-like predatory animal that lived in the mountains. You know, the situation was like, don't, you know, be careful if you go off into the wilderness because that is where the Nicomata lives. Uh, attacks of this creature were apparently reported as just fact. They, this was not something legendary. It was just something that might happen to you if you were unlucky in the wilderness. Oh, it reminds me of the dad taking his kid to see aliens saying, no, he needs to see this because he needs to know things like this can happen in the world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, Davidson writes that th there are different speculations about uh, what this could all be about. Uh, there's at least one idea that it could be evidence of a surviving, perhaps prehistoric variety of Yamaniko or leopard cat. Uh, so, you know, essentially like some sort of a uh, at the time, surviving large predatory cat. There also he also brings up the idea that well, tigers were brought in as curiosities during this time. Perhaps one escaped and was living in the forest and had attacked people. I mean, it's it's easily one of those situations where if you just have one tiger attack occur like this, it's enough to uh, leave an imprint in in folklore. And then another idea that's perhaps more compelling is that these could be sort of. Um, enhanced uh, accounts of rabid animal attacks. So mm. rabies could essentially be um, you know, what is at the heart of these stories. That would make sense, yeah. So anyway, we have these stories of from the wilderness of some sort of large Nicomata cat. 
Uh, and then during the Edo period, we see this legend intensified. So Davison writes that the the, the cats get larger, they get more fierce in the in the stories, but then they're transformed into uh, into not a distinct species, but is a power upgrade to just the common domestic cat. Again, it gets old enough, the tail splits, and now you have a different creature on your hands, and its appetites, its desires, uh, its cunning are something entirely new at that point. This touches on something interesting because I'm uh, I, I got interested in the idea of the Nekomata being a thing that is created when a cat reaches a sufficient age. Uh, and so here I want to turn to notes from uh, a book that I've referred to on the podcast before called The Book of Yokai by an Indiana University folklore scholar named Michael Dylan Foster. Uh, and uh, there, there was a section of the book that I thought was really interesting because it, it, it I was originally looking at it just because it had a glancing mention of yokai stories about cats. But actually, uh, it got to a broader theme uh, about the significance of the number 100 in Japanese spooky storytelling. So the book is talking about a historical tradition known as the Hayaku Monogatari, which is a, a Japanese tradition of gatherings where people would come together to trade stories of the weird and uncanny in the hopes of actually inducing a supernatural experience through the storytelling. Oh, that's that's wise. I agree. I think, yeah, that's a great plan. I, I would love to go to one of these. Yeah. So it works like this. People would gather by night in a room or maybe in like a, uh, he says, in like a semi-public place, a room, a gathering place, a temple, maybe in a, in a place lit by candles or lanterns. And the people gathered would take turns recounting tales of ghosts or yokai. And after each story was finished, I think the stories would be fairly short. After each story was over, one of the lanterns or candles would be snuffed out until you keep getting fewer and fewer lights. And then after the final tale ends and the final flame is extinguished, that would leave the room completely dark, at which point the people in attendance might get to see a real yokai in the darkness. Ooh, I like it. I mean, and again, this is wise, because if you if you want to prime yourself uh, for having a, um, a supernatural encounter, uh, there's no better way than to lower the lights and start recounting strange tales. If you build it, they will come. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the book quotes a late 17th century Buddhist priest and author named Asai Ryoi, who uh, writes, quote, It is said that when you collect and tell 100 stories of scary or strange things that have been passed down since long ago, something scary or strange is certain to occur. So tell 100 stories about it. Make it happen for real. Oh, I like this. And Foster says this was probably not always understood as a literal threshold of exactly 100 stories, uh, even though that is literally what uh, Hayaku Monogatari means. Uh, but in practice, it probably just means a lot of stories. And you can tell this because some of the Hayaku Monogatari collections have fewer than 100 stories in them. So, you know, it pro probably doesn't actually need to be literally 100. On the other hand, he relates this to other Japanese tales of the magical and uncanny in which the number 100 has special properties. For example, 
a subject that we have done an episode about on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before, the Sukumogami, which are these inanimate household objects, you know, uh, hammers, uh, dinnerware, mm. uh, brooms, objects from the house that transform into magical animate sentient beings when they turn the age of 100. I remember this. Yes, you end up with like a parade of of uh, bewitched old things. Exactly. And I remember we, we talked about one uh, famous story where I think they all get converted to a specific branch of, of Buddhism at the end. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. But uh, as another example of the transformative power of the number 100 in some Japanese stories, Foster writes that it was sometimes said that an ordinary animal that had reached the age of 100 would undergo a magical metamorphosis and become a yokai. And these animals could include foxes, could include tanuki, and yes, also cats. And so, coming back to your comment earlier, Rob, that uh, cats that reach a sufficient age could transform into some type of altered cat or uh, or, or uh, supernatural cat yokai, like a nekomata, you apparently have to watch out for those 99-year-old cats. They are just biding their time <laughs> until the birthday, and then they have the power. That's right. That's right. Up until 99, decent, you know, probably household cat, but 100 years old, watch out. Now they're, now they're a menace. Now, I think there are also stories where cats reach a certain age and, and become transformed or dangerous in some way, and the number is not exactly 100. But I do think it's interesting that there is a recurring theme about the number 100 across these different stories. Uh, you know, for some reason, this is the number after which things get weird. Mm-hmm. Now, I just want to mention what Foster says directly about the Nekomata as a yokai type. Uh he says that many written accounts of Nekomata describe them as monstrously large cats living in the wilderness, in mountains and forests, uh, but sometimes also found in human settlements. But the the idea of locating them out in the mountains and forests, that's on a, that kind of goes along with what you were saying about the idea that these could go back to stories of like a wild animal that that is occupying a place and is dangerous. That's right. And I should also mention that uh, Davison, I believe, stresses that the the sort of rural version of the Nekomata uh, as this you know wild large mountain cat that isn't necessarily connected to domestic cats that still remained a a folk belief uh, out in the wilds or in, on the, the borders of the wild uh, mm. but then you get this new version of the Nekomata that is more urban and based more on on the the domestic house cat. This might actually be going back to the same source referenced in the book you were talking about, but uh, at least Foster talks about an early story of the Nekomata appearing in the literature uh, from 1233, and it is described in this source as a creature with the eyes of a cat but the body of a huge dog. And I think that's a that's a striking combination that kind of uh, sets the mind racing, not only because it has this classic recipe of uh, of monster creation, which is combining different attributes of different animals, you know, using sort of the uh, the mixing and matching power of the human mind to kind of, you know, potato head up different uh, different predator features. Uh, But I think it's interesting that 
you're you're taking the eyes of a cat and the body of a dog. So the physical power of a big dog, and as as scary as cats can be sometimes, if you're talking about domestic animals, it's you know you can understand why you might be more physically intimidated by a big dog than by a house cat. But without the dog's sweet and subservient nature, you instead bring in the eyes, and of course with the eyes we equate eyes to minds. And so if you're putting the mind of a cat in the body of a big, powerful dog, it's like the uncontrollable and amoral will to power of a cat in the body of a dog that could really harm you. Yes, yes. And as you mentioned, Robin, these early stories, and in this one, the Nekomata eats seven or eight people in a single night. Uh, That's too many. You know that that (laughs) Nekomata is just going to barf up most of those people, and then someone's going to have to clean it up. He's going to barf up six of those people in your shoes. Right. And then he's going to look at me like, hey, I'm still hungry. I don't know why I'm hungry, but I need help. (laughs) And then finally, I just wanted to uh, quote from part of a paragraph uh, Foster has here. He's writing about a a Japanese source that has illustrations of Nekomata. Uh, So Foster writes, quote, Toriyama Sekien illustrates a Nekomata in his first catalog. It stands on two legs on the outer veranda of a house with a small towel on its head. Another cat, presumably not a yokai, sits on the ground below it, while a third seems to be looking out from inside the house. Although Sekien does not explain anything here, the Nekomata is portrayed as betwixt and between the human and natural worlds. It is wild, but wears a towel on its head, stands on two legs like a person, and is perched literally on the outer edge of a human habitation, with one cat outside, possibly feral, behind it, and another inside, possibly domestic, in front of it. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it, uh, again, like all of these these examples we're looking at, you know, they're touching on the the superstition and the you know the the mythic and folkloric world, but they're also commenting on like a lot of time spent with cats trying to figure them out. You know how yeah. they're 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 domesticated, but they're still wild. Like they're they they are suspended between worlds. I think that's exactly right. I, mean, I don't know the mind of the illustrator here, but this seems like it could be providing some rather nuanced analysis but with this kind of drawing like uh commenting on the nature of the cat as a as a pet or as a domestic animal that it's own it's only partly part of our world and also i like the implied threat of the nearness of the the known normal mundane cats to this monstrous cat that you know what I mean? Like kind of like mm-hmm. placing them beside one another is almost like, you know, watch out, <laughs> watch out for yeah. the, the nature of the cat you think you know. Yeah, because the, 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 your just normal house cat knows that there are Nekomata out there and just doesn't care. It's like, yeah, this is just how it is. Now, I, I do really, uh, I'm glad you brought up the, the towel on the head because that is important uh, when considering the next example we're going to talk about here. And that is the Bakaneko, the shape-shifting cat. Uh, so in this case, you get even more advanced age, numerous tails, and it grants them the ability to change their form and interfere directly in human affairs. So not just scratches, not just, you know, not just messing up furniture, um, attacking feet and so forth, uh, not just merely eating people after you turn into a giant cat, a giant monster cat, but actually taking on a human form and directly interfering in the human world, sometimes helping humans, sometimes hunting them for sport. Again, 
they're just like the domestic cat in spirit. They're completely immoral. Uh, they may be helpful. They may be sweet. It depends on what they want. Now, Davison, in discussing uh, the Bakaneko, writes that they were said to, in their cat form, dance on their hind legs and wear towels on their heads. Uh, this account, he says, apparently spawned from a story about a soy sauce merchant who kept finding his towels in disarray and then hid one night to see what was happening. What's happening to my towels at night? Um, and uh, what was happening? Well, cats were coming in, wearing the towels on their head and dancing around on their hind legs, you know, and he was horrified. And I don't remember perhaps eaten at the end. But uh, apparently this is a magical trope in Japanese folklore. An animal puts something on its head, uh, like with the tanuki, the tanuki will put leaves on its head, and this helps activate magical powers. Mm. Uh, he also adds here that some traditions describe Bakanikos as humans who can turn into cats, and tom- sometimes the story is that if a cat drinks the blood of a murder victim, they will transform into a Bakaneko, taking the shape of the victim in order to seek vengeance. Oh, yeah. This appears to be a major plot point in a movie I was looking at because Foster mentions it uh, in his write-up on the the Bakaneko. But there is a movie from 1969 directed by Tanaka Takuzo called The Haunted Castle, and it has exactly this plot. I think there is an evil landlord and a woman who is wronged by this evil landlord, and she ends up... um, I, I believe uh, killing herself or somehow and letting a cat drink her blood. And this transforms the cat into a into a creature, a monster of vengeance that goes and attacks the the man who is oppressing her. Nice, nice. I was looking. I, I noticed there's a 1968 film called Bakineko, A Vengeful Spirit, uh, which uh, looks like it maybe has a similar plot. And we'll come, you know, this there's there's an interesting area we're, we're already touching on here. Uh, this connection between living domestic cats and deceased human beings. Essentially, we're getting into the realm of post-mortem predation in which um, an animal, in this case a cat, a, a pet animal, will drink the blood or consume some of the flesh of someone who has died. Uh, if someone in the house has died, even a, a, you know, a, an owner who loved that animal in life, well, it, still, your, your pet is an animal and they mate have a little to eat. It's just how it goes. It's a known known fact, a known reality of having pets. Um, but it also ends up leading to various supernatural interpretations, this connection between, in this case, the cat and the dead. Uh, so again, more on that later. Uh, but um, in terms of just sort of like a general possible origin story for this idea of cats taking on human form, uh, Davison shares, shares this idea. Okay. You have oil lamps uh, at the time that are uh, that are being used to illuminate homes in the dark. Uh, uh, fish oil is used in these lamps. Cats want some of that fish oil, and mm. so they will stand on their hind legs and try to access the fish oil in the lamps, which in turn casts strange shadows on the wall. And this com- you can combine this, combine this with other sort of uncanny aspects of the cat. You know, their vocalizations that certainly can sometimes sound almost human, almost like a baby or something, or, or like they're trying to intone something, uh, as well as just all the other, you know, very suspect things that cats are doing on just a, a regular daily basis. I mean, just generally speaking, I will say that, you know, when you see, just anecdotally, when you see a cat standing on its hind legs, yeah. uh, which they, they can do, they can rear up if they want to, if they need to see over something, et cetera. 
it, it is a little weird because suddenly they're bipedal. Suddenly they are. It's like they're taking on the, a different form. And cats can move their bodies in so many different ways that, yeah, they like we've discussed in the show before, they can almost seem fluid. They can, it can feel like they are changing their shape in a way that is not tethered to some skeletal or muscular form, or at least not one like we're used to considering with a human being or even like a dog. Now, regarding bipedal imagery of monster cats from Japan, I hate to bring the Internet into this, but <laughs> I found what struck me as a substantial meme incursion onto my, my processing of antique Japanese art. Um, there's a picture that is up on the wiki for this creature, for the Bakaneko, uh, that comes from an 18th century imaki or picture scroll by the Japanese painter and poet Yosabusan. This painting is called the Bakaneko of the Sasakibara family, and it depicts a monster cat in a bizarre bipedal posture with four legs spread out, kind of like shrugging arms, like, what do you want from me? Uh, of course, a towel on the cat's head, sort of a napkin hanging off the back of the cat's head behind the ears, and a facial expression that is equal parts menace and goof soul. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, oh my God, it's the cat from the woman yelling at cat meme. Just a chaotic, <laughs> confused goblin spirit in the most fundamentally feline way possible. No, this is this is solid. Yes, and in fact, uh, uh, after you mentioned this, I was like, I wonder, I wonder if anyone has transformed this, given the popularity of of that meme. And sure enough, I found somebody on uh, on Etsy who has created like a like a traditional looking Japanese two panel image of the encounter where you have um, um, it's, it's, where you have the, there's the there are the, the two women uh, one is yelling and then there is the cat seated at a table behind this uh, plate with some vegetables on it <laughs> and I, you know i think it is almost impossible to consider many of these classic japanese cat illustrations without comparing them to cat memes in large part because the, the images are so good at capturing the essence of the cat yes. i mean the, the memes do i mean one of the reasons that meme um, has uh, has uh, has re resonated so strongly is that yeah I mean the, the cat part of it feels very on brand and uh, you see this in some of the, uh, the the older illustrations of of cats in Japan as well. There's a great 19th century illustration of cats in various positions by Udagawa Kunayoshi, and this one is worth looking up because it features I found mostly naturalistic depictions of cats. And they're like, you know, at least a, a few dozen of these. Uh, but then there are also some un, unnatural or even supernatural ones as well. Like if you look around closely at this, Joe, I included it for you. You'll see one one cat with a towel on its head with kind of like zombie arms up. Um, <laughs> there are some other cats that are doing things of that nature. And then also cats just doing normal cat things. Yep. Just like snoozing in a basket. Mm -hmm. Sleeping. Uh, chewing on a dead squid. Is that what I'm looking at? Yeah. Dragging a big dead squid. Um, that one, like the squid is so big there. It, it makes me, me wonder, but, um, but yeah. And then other, you just see cats interacting with each other. And of course, cats as a loaf with their, uh, with their, their, their legs, uh, tucked in underneath them, curled up in a circle, you know, all the, the various forms of the cat that we're accustomed to, uh, you know, were novel then just as they're novel now. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. 
In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I have one more area concerning the back and echo I want to touch on here. Though, uh, just in the event that you're listening with uh, with small children, maybe maybe skip this part and come back later. Um, just just because it, it it is maybe a little more mature in themes uh, compared to what we've discussed so far. So, fair warning. Okay, now that you've had a chance to leave, I want to just add a word here about back and echo prostitutes. So during the this is this is covered in Davison uh, during the Edo period. Uh, Kiboshi or yellow books sprang up as a kind of, um, he describes it as kind of like a penny dreadful literary genre of the day. You know, uh, this is literature that is just appealing to to, to very base interests. Uh, And they included these uh, guidebooks to the pleasure districts. 
Uh, and these guidebooks included mentions of actual places, actual people, but also inhuman entities one might encounter, namely um, back in echo prostitutes that would otherwise just look like a normal human prostitute, but their shadow would eventually give them away as a shape-shifting cat, coming back to perhaps to that idea of the, the strange cat reaching up towards the lamplight. Mm. Now, a major inspiration for this idea, uh, he's, he writes, uh, was an, an Edo period tale of such a being working in a particular district, and it soon caught on in written and visual storytelling. Um, eventually, and eventually you have various embellishments that are made, either for telling a good story or for creating a compelling image. Uh, one of these is that there may be discarded fish around the bedroom or even a discarded human arm, because, again, it is not a human being. It is a cat monster that is consuming human victims. Now, uh, initially, this is just a, a tale of horror, you know, uh, kind of a watch out for the uh, the monsters in disguise out there in the, the shadowy world at night. But Davison writes that it eventually becomes this kind of fun visual fad. Uh, there's an 18th century illustration that he shares in the book of a samurai walking hand in hand with one of these bakineko, but it's, it's, it has a cat's head. It just looks like it's like a full furry in this uh, illustration. And they're just kind of like, okay, we're, we're out in the open with this now. I, I, I have a relationship with a cat woman, and it's, it's A-OK. He also writes that this idea was even eventually embraced by, by women working in the pleasure district. So accentuating their names or, uh, and or keeping a cat uh, in order to play up the idea that they might be something other than human. Oh, so like playing with these cat themes for fun or that uh, that there was some kind of power in it? Man, I'm guessing both, you know, it, it yeah. sounds like it could be both. On one hand, it, yeah, like superstition becoming fetish uh, uh, after after a while. But also, yeah, there is this idea of the, the Bakaneko uh, woman is is this vengeful thing, this thing that will, the, you know, d- destroy these uh, these men. And so you could see it being embraced on that level as well. Now, Davidson doesn't go into that so much, but mentions that some commentators have tried to establish a connection here between the folktale and a general prohibition at the time against courtesans eating in the, pre- in the, the presence of, of men, eating in the presence of their clients in this case, uh, forcing them to sneak snacks in a hunched over cat-like posture. Hmm. Um, I'm, I don't know. Maybe this is true. I don't know. I have a hard time sort of buying into this in my own mind, but... But it, he mentions it, so it, it, I think a number of commentators have made this this connection. Uh, and then a broader connection, he says, you can, uh, looking in the other direction, moving forward uh, towards modern times, there's like a general cat-girl trope in Japanese pop culture of today uh, that is, you know, not directly uh, related to these examples, but like you just see like this idea of the, the cat-human hybrid, um, the, 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 the female cat person as being this... Uh, this motif uh, that is echoed throughout uh, throughout the decades and throughout different forms of media. And for that matter, one that uh, we find throughout the world as well. I mean, like as far as I know, Catwoman from from the Batman franchise is not directly connected to any motifs from, say, Japanese culture. There is perhaps just some connection to be made between uh, I don't know, stereotypical images of, uh, of, the, of the feminine form and the cat. Uh, I don't know. There's, there, I'm sure there's someone who's written extensively on this from a larger, like, global perspective. 
Oh, yeah. Well, in a Western context, I mean, I think of the, the classic uh, 1942 American horror movie Cat People, which has mm. a it has a cat woman in it um, and uh, is used to, to great spooky effect. I didn't see that one. I think um, I think when the, the movie man came around, uh, the movie man said, hey, would you like to see Cat People or would you like to see Sleepwalkers from 1992 <laughs> from the mind of Stephen King? And I said, oh, I like Stephen King. Uh, let's watch Sleepwalkers. Uh, which has cats in it. I don't remember if the monster people are also cat people in that. Uh, they're sort of cat people. It is a movie about a, uh, I think, sort of incestuous mother-son monster couple who can sort of morph into cats and have cat powers and can, I think, turn invisible and have super strength. And they go around... Uh, I don't know, like like drinking young women's souls or something. And the only way they can be defeated is by house cats, like cats chase them around. And if they get if the cats get to them, the cats can defeat them, but nothing else can. Yep, that that's about how I remember it. Yeah, Uh, I haven't seen it in forever, though. It has a a great cast. Uh, Solid director, too. To, uh, somebody in it gets murdered with a corn cob. I think maybe Ron (laughs) Perlman gets stabbed with a corn cob. Oh, man, I do not remember that part. Maybe it's a different guy who gets corn cobbed. I don't know. Yeah, I just did a search for Ron Perlman corn cob death scene, and nothing came up. So uh, maybe it just hasn't been embraced online. In the I know somebody gets killed with a corn cob. I'm not making that up. <laughs> Listeners who have seen Sleepwalkers recently, write in and prove me right. <laughs> All right, uh, and uh, as we close out this episode, it's in general, uh, write in if you have um, insight and additions on anything we've discussed here. Uh, We would love to hear from you. But we will be back with more in part two. That's right. Uh, Now, before we close out here, I do have a a couple of of extra matters to to highlight. Um, If you're on uh, social media, you might have noticed that we have new host photos for Stuff to Blow Your Mind. If you haven't seen them, uh, run by our recently revived social media presences, uh, all linked off of StuffToBlowYourMind.com. We are STBYM podcast on Instagram now. And uh, you can uh, you can check out these new photos. Uh, if you're wondering where were these photos taken, well, Joe and I visited the Museum of Illusions Atlanta, a delightful and educational attraction located in Atlantic Station here in Atlanta. They feature a whole host of visual illusions, including illusion rooms you can walk into and interact with. And that includes taking your own selfies there. Joe, do you remember that room we went into where, depending on where you stood, we could change how big you looked and how small I looked on the uh, on the screen. Oh, yeah. It's a great place to play. I'm the big one now uh, <laughs> to just take turns going from corner to corner. And uh, yeah, th- this place is a lot of fun. They've got they've got a ton of great illusions to showcase. Uh, I'm really excited about taking the baby. That's right. Fun for all ages. And you can learn more about Museum of Illusions Atlanta at MOIAtlanta.com. Also, hey, it's like we've been uh, hitting here. It's Halloween season. Uh, If you are looking to pick up some Stuff to Blow Your Mind merchandise, well, we have a new shirt available for the Halloween season. It's our occult Stuff to Blow Your Mind logo shirt. You can find that over at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. You can click on the store tab there. Uh, You'll also find images of this shirt and links on our social media. 
Just a reminder to everyone out there that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a primarily a science podcast with core episodes publishing on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do a listener mail episode. On Wednesdays, we usually do a monster fact or artifact episode that's short form. And then on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, coming May 15th, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 